Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast today on the pod throne speech with a global economic slowdown while the latest is the BC government announces its priorities for the spring session. And while we debate China's spy balloon, why are Canadian universities still conducting research with Chinese military scientists? That's all next on the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Let's focus on a developing story. In the last few hours, the board of the Vancouver Folk Music Festival uh, say it has rescinded the motion that would have permanently shut down the festival. Now, the vote to dissolve the society was initially scheduled for February 1st, but the date was pushed back by a month or so. Now, the board has said that several parties have offered possible solutions, so that is very uh, great news. And as you may recall, uh, news broke of the potential cancellation just a few weeks ago. Uh, after the board said that it would need an extra $500,000 to produce a, a festival, like many music festivals, uh, they have been dealing with significant challenges when it comes to production costs, particularly in a post-COVID uh, environment. Joining us now is Gary Christo. He's co-founder of the Vancouver Folk Music Festival. He was also its first coordinator and its second artistic director. Gary, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. First of all, your thoughts on the uh, the, the news of, of today that it looks like they've rescinded the motion to I'm dissolve. delighted. I was part of a group of people, fairly large group, that opposed dissolving the society and was uh, clamoring for them to withdraw the motion to dissolve. And I'm really happy that they uh, listened to the voice of the uh, Vox Populi, I guess the phrase is, <laughs> and uh, have withdrawn the motion to dissolve the society. So why do you think they had actually gone out a couple of weeks ago and all this news uh, that had, you know, with the release and everything, that they were going to potentially shut down the folk festival, and there were significant challenges? What has challenge- changed in two weeks? Well, I don't know. I mean, I would have to understand why they did it in the first place, which I thought was to use a a tough phrase, somewhat idiotic, um, to dissolve the society, whether or not you do a festival or what kind of festival. I think basically they were amazed at the hundreds and hundreds, I suppose thousands of people who started ragging on them and saying, don't do it, and they've pulled back. I, I, I don't know any other way to explain it other than like i could be kind and say they've come to their senses Mm -hmm. uh phil hemming uh, who is a vice president at the vancouver folk music festival uh was on my colleague jill bennett show just uh maybe an hour hour and a half ago oh yeah Uh, take a listen to his comments in January, middle of January, we did issue a, um, a release saying that uh, the festival in 2023 wasn't going to be happening and that we were actually putting forward a motion at our AGM to dissolve the uh, Folk Festival Society. Since then, though, uh, we have had a, such a tremendous outpouring of, of love and support for the festival from the people who attend the festival, from the members. The folks spoke, and uh, at a, a, we've decided that given the uh, this outpouring, of support for the festival, that there there may well be a, a, a way forward for the festival and for the society. So we have decided to take the, the motion off the table. 
So, Gary, that would probably be you and people like you who have come forward. And, uh, yeah, we were the ones with the torches and agricultural <laughs> implements marching on the castle. <laughs> so it, it, that is wonderful. Uh, at the same time, you still need probably half a million dollars to deal with all the, the challenges that are there uh, before the, the, the Folk Music Festival. How do you think they'll find that half a million? Well, first, I'm not convinced they need half a million dollars. I've looked at the budget, and I I know a little bit about the festival, having run it for a while, Mm -hmm. way back. I think, and other people who who also know a lot more about it, say that the uh, budget is a kind of pessimist budget. uh, There's areas where money can be saved, so I don't know. Um, I know that the existing board wants to go out and raise funds, and I guess they hope that... uh, Wonderful things are going to happen, and a whole bunch of money comes in. Uh, it's all all I can say. I I think the, the the thing is that that it may be true for a series of of reasons that you can't run a festival that looked like the one that was there. But that doesn't mean you dissolve a society. That was our point was mm-hmm. to take another look at it, but keep the society alive. I think, frankly, it needs new leadership. I think trusting a board that said that they'd run out of ideas and couldn't see a way forward and had to, were going to dissolve the society, I'm not sure that they are the people to take it forward. I think there's other voices out there and other energy that can be brought to bear, and hopefully uh, some of those people will be able to get involved. Uh, it, 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 what you're saying essentially is a much smaller folk festival potentially if, if the money isn't there I don't and, know and I don't know if it's smaller I mean one of the options is how much I mean there's there are two big costs for your festival one of which is building a site mm-hmm. and that seems to be the most challenging but there's also uh, the question of uh, how much you're spending on artists and which artists we used to pay everyone the same years ago uh, that's no longer the case, so I'm not sure how, whether or not you can economize there, whether or not you can economize on the site. I don't think it necessarily needs to be smaller. It may need to be different. Mm-hmm. I think the main thing is, and they've done that, is you take the motion to dissolve off the table. Then at least you can have a discussion without a gun being held to your head and saying, we're going to kill the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh it's not the only festival. I think it's fair to say that that's de- not. They're all dealing with the post-COVID environment of, of uh, attracting, uh, you know, funding, attracting, uh, just having the upfront production costs that are required. Uh, yeah. So it's not the only one that's uh, under the gun here. No, no, and I've said uh, in <laughs> in a number of conversations, there's a hundred folk festivals in Canada right now, roughly, and only one of them says they can continue. So I think it's not indicative of a systemic problem. It's indicative of a Vancouver problem. And Vancouver is a little bit different. I was saying to somebody the other day, count the number of porta-potties that are on construction sites as you drive around, and you see some of the challenges that the festival faces in terms of site costs. But... uh, no, I think I think I think it will be an inter- hopefully an open and interesting conversation on how to move forward and who should move the thing forward. But I think that some form of folk music festival in Jericho Beach Park is possible this year. But for you and uh, your co-founders, those are very much interested in the folk music festival. For you to convince the board uh, um, uh, to continue. 
in your mind still speaks to a lack of vision and desire, and, and you would like to see that the, the board replaced. Yeah, I think that uh, when when a, when a leadership runs out of room and road and says it's time to kill the organization, they are probably not the best people to take it forward. Yeah. Gary, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Well, the B.C. government says it plans to put this year's projected budget surplus uh, to work as an economic slowdown looms. Just think about that for a second. High interest rates, uh, high inflation. Uh, we've got um, law and order challenges as well, housing affordability challenges. The surplus sits at $5.7 billion, almost $6 billion. Uh, today, uh, Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin uh, read the government's throne speech today give you a sense of where the government wishes to go with the spring sitting of the legislature which will begin uh, next week um, check six political correspondent rob shaw was there covering it he joins us now rob uh, thanks for joining us thanks for having me so what is your overall impression of today's throne speech well you know i think there's probably a lot here but the challenge with throne speeches are they're so darn vague that it's difficult to really dig down into kind of meaningful items that people might care about, you know, in their day-to-day lives today. There's a clear trend in the speech, though, that the government expects dark times on the horizon. It talks about an economic storm that is about to hit, where we're going to have interest rates at high levels, inflation at high levels, um, you know, cost of living is going to be way up there, and that the number one issue of anxiety on the mind of voters, according to the, the speech, uh, is that cost of living, is how you're affording your day-to-day and your week-to-week and your rent and your mortgage. So there's a big discussion in the speech about, you know, spending large in, in areas using some of the money the government has this year and then crafting programs that are going to come later this year uh, and a kind of continued reference back to the government will be there for you in what is looking to be perhaps not as a uh, not as rosy a year as uh, as people were hoping for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm curious, in regards to the budget surplus that we've talked about, $5.7 billion, uh, they have to spend that by, correct me if I'm wrong here, by the end of March? That's right, yeah, by March 31st, or it goes on to debt. So there's a discussion in here about that surplus. It's almost $6 billion projected this year. It could be larger uh, than that, depending on how things are going. But that was mainly a one-time thing. It was tax adjustments from the federal government, some natural resource revenue. So it's not like government can bake it in every year, but it talks in the speech about spending that on a record investment in healthcare to cut wait times and uh, spending it on housing, giving it to cities uh, so that they can use it for some of their services, fighting climate change, um, that, that type of thing. So th- there's no doubt from listening to the premier prior to this speech, he's blowing that money out the barn door uh, by the end of March. He's not allowing it to go onto debt like last year, when the NDP let a couple billion dollars just roll straight unspent uh, onto the debt uh, and took a lot of flack for doing that. So there's money here for them to spend, but um, it is not money that we might see next year. So it's it's kind of a couched uh, economic aid package, whatever it might be. There is talk about aid in here, but it's just not very specific on what it might look like. Uh, they've talked about darker times ahead, and I think economists and, and many financial uh, commentators have been talking about that. A real estate industry being another one. But one of the, the issues front and center for, for the Premier has been public safety. And as you said, he's very much uh, is front and center on the housing issue. 
it is a vague document today, but um, those types of policy issues that are, you know, need significant amount of thought and collaboration with the federal government and local local government, there's not much yet in regards to what they plan to do. No, there is, you know, discussion about public uh, safety in here and a crackdown, some new legislation on uh, gangs and proceeds of crime, a recommitment to seizing the assets, assets of criminals uh, to fight that, to push Ottawa to reform those bail conditions that we've seen the premier talk about uh, and to kind of improve the public, um, you know, sentiment on the streets. But it's not super specific. There's some mention here of legislation uh, that will come on the gang issue. There is uh, legislation that is mentioned on the non-consensual sharing of intimate images, uh, which is a federal issue that, that BC is pushing for, but plans to introduce a bill on, uh, and that type of thing. There, there's also talk about new strategies around around it. But no, um, I think we've heard EB unveil his prolific offender plan, his almost $300 million for new RCMP officers, that seems to be the backbone of, of his plan going forward. Mm-hmm. And and I assume they're going to continue to drive, uh, drive uh, hard in regards to affordable housing and uh, bringing in legislation for that. There's a couple things here. There's, there's a reference to a refreshed housing strategy coming this year, which um, I'm not sure what that is, but the last housing strategy, you remember, from government was a 10-year plan to build 114,000 units. It's six years in, and we're not even close. We're not even at a third of that. So uh, whether the NDP can hit that or what they plan on doing there it could be refreshed. There's talk of you know, new measures um, to build more housing for middle-class families, which is a slight change in the NDP's focus on lower-income uh, folks. And we heard the Premier say this yesterday, that there are a lot of middle-income people. The NDP have not been helping because on paper they're too wealthy, according to government, to deserve financial aid. And when government means tests or income tests as aid packages, a lot of people are left out um, who on paper look like, you know, the NDP is not interested in helping. And that seems to be changing here. Middle class housing, uh, the government intends to build. You know, <laughs> we know housing takes a long time. Uh, we know it's difficult. I'm not sure how they plan on doing that. But we have seen him push for sort of short term things like eliminating the rental restrictions on stratas, uh one thing that has yet to be done is the um, secondary suites being permitted across the entire province, regardless of if your municipality doesn't allow them right now. So that could be legislation we might see from the government here in the next couple of months. Uh, ultimately, final question here. This is the year for David Eby through his policy announcements, his pronouncements, where he spends money. This is where he puts a stamp on government 2023 as we head into 2024. Uh, and and the drumbeat for an election uh, grows, this is the year where he really puts his mark on government. I think it is, you know, and this is a very important throne speech and a very important budget. The budget's where we get all the details, but he he wants to to use that uh, at a time where voters are getting to know him this year and trying to understand what he stands for and how he's different from John Horgan. So I think the budget is going to be huge. The throne speech, I, I thought he'd be more specific, but a lot of premiers prefer to make it vague and then announce these things in the real world in front of real people wearing hard hats or cutting ribbons. So that's why this tends to be kind of a little bit boring. But there's enough in here to, to, to show that he's focused on housing and on 
crime uh, and on health care, and there's some discussion of climate change and some new investments on housing around public transit hubs, which we've hear, heard before. There's a couple interesting bills people might notice on right to charge. So they'll mandate electric vehicle charging stations and stratas. You can't forbid them. Um, if your condo doesn't allow them, get ready because that law will change that. Uh, things like that that might cut through into people's ordinary lives. But uh, this government intends to announce those one by one as it blows this money out the door the next few months. Um, not today in detail in this throne speech. Well, you know what? Uh, it's uh, it's early in the year, plenty of time for ribbon cuttings and kissing babies and uh, uh, press conference with, with the individuals with hard hats. It's coming. I can feel it already. So thanks. Yeah, so I can much. feel it too, yeah. <laughs> thanks so much, Rob. Okay, take care. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Well, let's get an update uh, on that earthquake that rocked uh, wide swaths of Turkey and uh, Syria today. Uh, the death toll at this moment sits at 3,400 people, uh, thousands more injured as well as thousands of buildings uh, were toppled. The earthquake uh, hit a magnitude 7.8 on the Richter scale. And authorities are fearing that the, the death toll could keep on climbing thousands, tens of thousands, uh, were left uh, homeless in Turkey and, and Syria as well. And, of course, they are facing the cold overnight uh, as well. Earlier today, uh, Natalie Behedi, uh, who is in Lebanon, uh, was speaking to our Jill Bennett, uh, and her parents are in Aleppo, Syria. Uh, she fell, said that they felt the earthquake. Take a listen to her comments on Jill Bennett's show. Everyone that I knew in Aleppo was in the streets um, and trying to trying to um, find safer places to be in. I'm sorry, I was. I told my brother I might get emotional. Um, yeah, so everyone was just trying to figure out what to do, basically. Um, and then it was morning, and then at that point, I, I finally felt, fell asleep a little bit. And then I woke up at around 12 to news that there's a lot of destruction in Aleppo and around Syria and Latakia and in Hama and, and even in, here in Lebanon in our own building there was some cracks in the walls and stuff. That was Natalie Behidi uh, in Lebanon uh, talking to our Jill Bennett uh, earlier today and as she said they could feel uh, the earthquake as far away as Lebanon. In fact she says that she saw some cracks in her own building in regards to the uh, effect of that 7.8 magnitude earthquake. Joining us now is Dr. Yusuf Altantaj. She's a distinguished scholar at UBC and former president of the Turkish Canadian Society. Dr. Altantaj, thank you for joining us today. 
Thank you. Uh, first of all, what are you hearing uh, from uh, uh, your fellow uh, Turkish Canadians, but also from Turkey itself? From Turkey, it is really devastating. I hear that some of the towns completely wiped out. Not a single house is standing in some towns. And some large towns, almost 50% of the buildings collapsed. And there are still so many people under the rubble. And it's also cold and winter there. And the roads uh, were destroyed. They cracked open. Airports, runways also uh, damaged. So aircraft cannot land. They are using only helicopters to reach. Mm -hmm. Even the large cities, it's really horrible. Hmm. Uh, the general area, I mean, it's a pretty big, uh, wide swath that we're talking about here. Uh, can you give me a sense, is, is, is it very, it's, is, is it quite urban and uh, very dense in regards to the population? Uh, cities like Maraş, Antep, they are uh, densely populated uh, by the people, because uh, like Antep, for example, is also an industrial city, so as Adana. And Hatay is next door to Syria. There are so many refugees there. The population almost doubled in Hatay because of the refugees. Turkey has about 5 million Syrian refugees who ran away from civil war in Syria. So That complicates the situation even more. Well, when you think of refugee camps, and I've been to a few uh, in my time as a reporter, uh, you know, obviously infrastructure is always a challenge at the best of times, and, and, and you can only imagine what is happening now with a, with a massive earthquake uh, like, uh, like they have seen in that area. Yes, yes. I think at least tents and so on are safer now in earthquake. I'm ta now talking as an engineer. Mm -hmm. Multi-story buildings, they are the most dangerous ones, mm -hmm. and more than 7,000 of them collapsed. Imagine the number of people who are now under the rubble. Yeah. Is that, a, is that area a major fault line? Yes. Almost uh, most, of the, most of Turkey is on the fault line. If, if you remember, in 1999, there was a major earthquake near Istanbul. Mm -hmm. Also, more than 10,000 people died. Uh, that area, uh, Maraş, Antep, where the earthquake took place yesterday, they did not experience such a huge earthquake problem for more than 100 years. Hmm. Uh, it, it, what can Canadians do to help, in your mind? Uh, at the moment, uh, we are all in shock. I think uh, uh, the people need uh, winter uh, housing, like tents, blankets, beds, and so on, and first aid kits. And the second is, of course, rescue mission. There are so many people under the rubble. And Turkish Canadians, I just talked to a few people today, and some Turkish uh, stores like a pizza uh, chain, Mavijin, which is a large store. Uh, uh, Mavijin is uh, accepting donations and keeping them in their store, and they will ship everything to Turkey. Yeah. And Pizza Garden is donating $1 per pizza, and this money will be also sent. I'm going to assume the Red Cross will also uh, will have a fund ready, and many of these organized, large international yeah. aid organizations will be, will be um, uh, involved as well. Have you called uh, Turkey yourself, talked to friends, family uh, in and around that area? No, I am from west of Turkey. My family is safe, mm -hmm. but uh, I talked to two of my students, uh, 
one of them is a former student who's an engineer here, and his family is living in a car because their building collapsed. Luckily, they were not in the building when it collapsed. Mm-hmm. And so many people are now, it's cold, they're staying in their cars, but it seems the gas, they run out of gas, and gas stations are shut down too. So it is, I mean, it, the... the it, like always in these situations, it's 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 an issue of infrastructure right now, and trying to recover as many people and save as many people as you possibly can when you have so many buildings, uh, and then of course just the infrastructure issues, roadways that work, water, gasoline that people can move around as well and help. So exactly. there's there's a lot of there's a lot ahead for uh, Turkey and Syria and 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 uh, neighboring areas as well. Doctor exactly. Altatans, thank you so much for your time today. Really awesome. appreciate it. Let's talk about the story that uh, caught our attention this week, and I think all of uh, Canada and the U.S. Uh, were paying attention to this story. Of course, we're talking about the spy balloon from China, the balloon which the Pentagon claims was spying on sensitive military uh, sites, was shot down over U.S. territorial waters uh, on Saturday. Now, the debris, we are told, has been spread over a wide area off the South Carolina coast. Now, China insists it's it was a weather ship blown astray. Uh, and they uh, certainly express, as they say, strong dis- dissatisfaction over its downing. Now, U.S. Navy divers are working to recover as much debris uh, from the balloon as possible. Former State Department official Steve Ganyard uh, was asked about the recovery efforts. Take a listen. It was likely an electro-optical package where they were taking high-fidelity photographs. There could have been a signals intelligence package where they were doing communication uh, intercepts. But once they get all the piece parts, they'll be able to do some forensic analysis, put it back together and see just what the Chinese were doing and what they were capable of of, uh, intercepting in the U.S. Now, usually when you talk about China, U.S. or China-Canada relations, uh, it's sort of a public policy conversation that the average person sort of may even roll their eyes at and go, you know, what's this got to do with us? Uh, But the China balloon issue uh, caught everybody's attention to the point where even Saturday Night Live uh, actually built their whole, uh, built a skit around uh, the situation this weekend. Take a listen. I know there were questions about why we didn't shoot it down immediately, but we wanted to wait till it was over the coast so that it wouldn't fall on people or go (laughs) and land on my car. I entertain you people for four days and then get shot by Biden? Can't believe I'm Joe's Osama. People were worried they were being spied on. By me, a balloon? Everyone's being surveilled constantly, but it's always shoot the balloon and never unplug Alexa. That's right, unplug uh, Alexa. Well, there's lots to talk about on this uh, issue. Uh, joining me now is Miro Chinetic. He's a former Beijing correspondent for the Globe and Mail. He's a CEO of Brand Centric and co-founder of City Age. I think he's the right guy to talk to us about this issue for, with some perspective. Miro, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jazz. How are you? I'm doing very well. First of all, let's talk about this balloon for a moment, this spy balloon. What do you think the repercussions, if any, will there be in regards to uh, the, the, this balloon being shot down by, by the U.S.? Oh, uh, I, think very, I think very few. I think, uh, you know, I think um, both sides know this, these, things ha- these things are happening, and uh, I don't think there'll be any, actually, because I don't think it was really a very sophisticated operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, how important is this in the broader context of China-Canada relations, China-U.S. relations? Well, this is a really, uh, a really interesting um, 
event. One is, um, you know, balloons have been been being used um, in, in warfare for almost a century now. So mm-hmm. this is nothing new. Um, they're they're slow moving. Used to used to put people on them. Now they put surveillance equipment on them, and you know it's very sophisticated. Not unlike what you would see in a a spy satellite, just a lot cheaper probably and slower moving. So mm-hmm. you can stay over a place longer, and you can move the balloons in different directions depending on how you how you do that. The U.S. military does the same thing. Um, what is interesting about it from the Canadian perspective is, according to the Canadian government and Canadian defense um, um, spokespeople, they knew this was coming in through Canada, and we didn't do anything, of course. We, we just we let it get into the United States uh, um, you know, territory, and uh, and that's where it all happened. But Canada you know, decided not to do anything about that, which is interesting. But Canada is also part of NORAD, and so they would not have made that decision without talking to their U.S., um, you know, uh, associates and, um, you know, partners in, 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 in North American defense, which is mm-hmm. what NORAD does. It, it's fair to say, and based on your comments, uh, we could say that this happens, happens more than we think. This is one of those rare moments where it's happening before the world and on, on, on the news. I mean, this is, uh, one could argue, a reminder that countries spy. Well, country spy, what's really interesting is they don't even know sometimes who's spying on whom. Uh, there's a report just came out a few hours ago from the Washington Post that the commander of NORAD, in charge of NORAD, said that they couldn't really detect these things. So in some ways, this may have just been luck that they found it. There's been others in the past um, during different administrations where they've, they've picked up these balloons. Um, so this is not new. This is this has been been going on for quite a while. Weather balloons are... Or, or happen all the time. Uh, and what's on a weather balloon, you know, who knows? Sometimes it's just the usual kind of equipment. Sometimes there may be extra things, none unlike satellites. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes, I think back to my reporting career uh, when I was based in India, and I would occasionally uh, go visit uh, the former head of India's foreign spy agency. He was retired. His name was Vikram Sooth. And one of the things he said to me uh, during those conversations, Jazz, every country spies in some capacity. And I I look back at that time in India, and I recall moving to China, and I was always amazed at how many defense or security uh, officials from the West were based in Beijing, predominantly American, and a lot of them could have been and probably were CIA. So it's not like the Americans don't do the same thing, and other countries don't do the same thing. It's just done differently. Yeah, so the most important thing to remember there is um, Americans and Chinese don't spy. They're just usually... They're just normal people. Same with Indians, same with Brits, right? Where they're just people who are doing their <laughs> daily life. But governments spy on each other. The Canadian government has its own surveillance operations. Uh, they're just they're of a different nature and a different expense, I would say. But all countries are spying. What the question you have to ask is what's the, what, what's the intent of your spying? Is the intent of your spying to uh, be aggressive and mount a military operation? Is it defense oriented? Is it to steal? IP from other countries. That's how you have to look at spying. There are different kinds of spying. The Chinese, um, I would just add, Jazz, the Chinese in this case, the Chinese, I would call that balloon really a soft spying operation. There's not much they're really probably going to get, but they're getting, they're, but they're getting surveillance that they, they want to watch. They're watching activities. They may be watching air routes. They may be even looking at situations on the ground in terms of, you know, how, uh, how things are going with droughts, etc. But the Chinese in general, what they're doing with their spying is they're not mounting a military operation. This is not a country that's trying to invade America. This is a country that's trying to understand 
what the United States and North America uh, is doing, the Atlantic Alliance in general. But what they, but I think what's more interesting about this is what it says about the Chinese state that they would do something like that. You can't imagine the Americans doing. Perhaps they're doing it, but I don't think so. I don't think the winds are in their favor. The winds all blow in our direction, so it works for balloons. But I don't think you're going to see Americans flying balloons over China. Mm-hmm. They're, they're doing they're doing that at, you know at a satellite level and in other levels. But the Chinese are basically uh, a country that is invested heavily in spying on its Western customers, you know, the, the people it needs to deal with in the world of trade and geopolitically in terms of military alliances. Yeah. So that, that is what they're doing. I, I look, when I look at the news over the last couple of weeks, uh, you had the Biden administration talking about providing a stop to providing U.S. companies with licenses to, to export to Huawei uh, as they want to move towards imposing a total ban on the sale of American technology, American technology to that Chinese telecom. Of course, we all know Huawei's record here uh, and the fact that uh, the federal government basically said we don't want them involved in our 5G technology. On top of that, uh, we had news last week from the Globe and Mail reporting that, you know, we are universal universities are still doing uh, uh, research with Chinese military scientists. They cited 50 Canadian universities, including, I think the University of Waterloo was uh, the the most prevalent, but you have the University of Toronto, UBC, SFU, uh, significant amount, uh, well-known educational institutions, McGill University as well, University of Victoria is included as well. I mean, what does that say? I mean, at the end of the day, the 21st century is all about technology and intellectual property, as you said. Should we not be looking at that in a much more um, strategic way and saying, no, we cannot be doing you know, these research projects in our major universities where we have talent and working with the Chinese? Yes, we should be. And the Americans have been doing that for the last 25 to 30 years, cutting cutting those sort of projects off and watching them more closely. Canada has been slow on that. That's why we were slow on Huawei. We were the last to to reject the technology, which would allow Huawei, which has military connections, to get into our telecommunication system and, mm-hmm. and, and, and perhaps compromise the Five Eyes surveillance systems that the Atlantic Alliance uses to you know keep keep their eye on the world. But China's major, I mean, and, and some of that research is definitely used for weapons research and has military applications. But China in general, I think the record shows, is trying to connect, uh, tr- trying to collect, sorry, technological data to get ahead. They're trying to get um, advances in biotech and um, telecommunications, uh, nanotechnology, robotics, that they might be able to find by sending researchers and demanding those researchers report back home on some of these really high-level research projects. What's happening now is, of course, Canada's woken up, and the United States woke up, I think, quite a long time ago, and there's going to be a lot more, I think, silos around that. It's not going to be as easy to do as it once was. And the fact that China, which has prided itself for generations now on having very friendly relations with, with China, which are not so friendly anymore, is now finding a public discourse about that, about really limiting, making sure that the Chinese research we, ha- we that are coming over here are working for the have the right motives. Miro, thank you for your time today, my friend. Really enjoyed our conversation. Look forward to chatting with you in the future on this issue. Pleasure. All thank right. You. 
couple of hours ago, Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin uh, read the throne speech. And the throne speech, of course, gives you an idea of the priorities of the government. It also kicks off an 11-week spring legislative session. Uh, the budget itself uh, will be uh, released on February 28th. So we got a few weeks uh, to go, but lots to talk about, even with this uh, throne speech. It can be quite vague sometimes, but it speaks to the broader sort of aspirations of the government. Joining me now to talk about today's throne speech is Ravi Kailam, BC's Minister of Housing. Minister, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jazz. Thanks a lot for having me. So let's touch on some of the broad uh, conversation and topics that I think are near and dear to our listeners' hearts and I think most British Columbians. Let's talk a little bit about housing for a moment. Uh, In the throne speech today, there was a a talk about increasing stock uh, uh, in regards to housing for the middle class. How uh, will the government go about doing that? Well, uh, uh, first we have the Housing Supply Act, which we passed, uh, which allows us in the Ministry of Housing to pick eight to ten communities uh, from across the province, uh, which we can identify um, when sitting down with them. We can address our, what kind of housing needs their community has, uh, set timelines on how fast and how quickly they'll be able to approve uh, a level of housing, which will help us address the challenges we have. So this spring we will be uh, making public which communities will be chosen in that process. We also will be launching our housing refresh strategy, which will lay out initiatives, everything from how we're going to get permitting approved faster throughout the province, uh, how we're going to look at uh, getting more supply on the market. So uh, a a wide array of housing, whether that's student housing, whether that's housing for people who need uh, subsidized support or those who are just looking for rental units, uh, or buy or buy into the market. So there's a whole host of initiatives that are coming this spring, and the throne speech alluded to some of them uh, in detail. Uh, in regards to the public safety, there's been significant uh, complaints from the opposition that uh, this government has has really allowed sort of a catch and release view when it comes to uh, crime. What kind of things can we expect broadly from from your go- from your government in regards to cracking down on some of that? Well, uh, I think most people that have been following this issue know that uh, the uh, issues we're dealing with are because of uh, federal legislation that was passed. It was some unintended consequences to the changes that the federal government made to bail reform. And and so all the premiers, uh, all the solicitor generals from across the country have met with the federal government to say, you need to fix this and you need to fix it quick uh, because we're having real impacts on our communities where people are getting caught and uh, and released uh, because of that provision. We also, uh, in the phone speech, it was highlighted that uh, we're creating teams that have police, uh, social worker, uh, um, uh, parole officers, uh, and a whole host of other professionals at one table, identifying where and who uh, these uh, particular folks are that are um, repeat offenders, uh, some would say, uh, and identifying how we're going to navigate and monitor them. So uh, there's the federal reforms, which will help us uh, address this issue of um, people being caught and then released, and then a, a larger measure, which is how do we get these people rehabilitated, uh, and, and if it needs to be uh, in, in jail, then how do we make sure that we can keep them there to keep the public safe? Uh, in regards to child care, I know we're jumping around from topic to topic, but I think these are the big ones that folks care about. Uh, there has been a significant amount of talk about uh, the child care savings that rolled out on December 1st. Um, talk to me a little bit about extending that child care program uh, to after-school care. 
Well, uh, childcare has been huge. I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, the, the throw speech talked about uh, the savings people uh, have been uh, getting from the investments we've made in childcare and being able to extend that to a larger pool of parents uh, is going to be a huge relief for many. And we know that there's a lot of people that could be working um, full-time but choose to work part-time because they don't have the supports for kids before and after school. And so being able to provide that not only is good for uh, families, uh, but it's also really good for uh, the economy. And we know we continue to have a labor shortage, so this will get, uh, give us an opportunity to have more people back in the labor market. Are we? I mean, I'm just curious in regards to that program specifically. The, the complaints have always been: look, it's uneven. Some folks uh, are getting the subsidy; others aren't. Uh, those who could use it aren't getting it. Those who could probably wait, or at least are doing better on the income scale are getting it. Uh, how is this going to be improved? Because right now the criticism has been that the child care program that's been announced is incredibly uneven. Well, I would say that, first off, majority of uh, parents uh, in the province are actually getting the, the supports right now. Uh, there are some uh, with providers that are opting out, uh, and, uh, of course, they have the option to do so. There are uh, some challenges with the uh, uh, some child care providers that are unique challenges, which uh, the ministry is actively trying to navigate and find solutions for. But overall, we know that overwhelming majority of families are receiving these payments and receiving uh, a uh, lower um, uh, rate uh, when it comes to child care services. And we also know by this announcement or the signaling that it's going to be expanded, it's going to include a lot more families. Final question to you, $5.7 billion surplus. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, you have to spend that by the end of March by law. Uh, will any of it be going to debt payment? Well, uh, it's hard for me to say because this is uh, in the realm of the Minister of Finance uh, and the Minister of Finance will be making those decisions. But I will say to you this, that uh, people have been clear to us that they want to ensure that any investment is made in a, in a smart way. They want to ensure that the dollars that uh, will be invested are going to things that they prioritize, uh, which is, you know, health care and the critical supports and services that they, uh, that they depend on. And so those will be the frames in, in which those decisions will be made. But, of course, that's in the purview of the Minister of Finance. And uh, I know we all look forward to hearing what she has to say soon. Yeah, February 28th, we'll definitely be, be watching. Minister, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me, Jeff, and stay safe. Inflation numbers, as you know, still remain high. Interest rate, uh, rates remain high. Gas prices and uh, grocery prices stretch family budgets. I think we all uh, see that every time you go to the grocery store or you go to the gas station uh, or even if you have to go renegotiate uh, your mortgage. Everywhere you look, Canadians are dealing with difficult times and it's not going away anytime soon. Well, some Canadians are using social media now to fight the high cost of livings. Lise LeBlanc is a mother of two. She started a Facebook group called Mom Jean so Canadians could help each other out who are going through difficult financial times. She joins us now. Lise, thank you for speaking to us today. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, I love this name, Mom Jeans. How did it all begin for you? Uh, the group began for me in 2019. Um, it had been a situation where I already had some debt. I bought a new couch, and by bought, I mean I bought now, paid later. And I sat down that night, and I was like, what are you doing? You already have a mountain of debt. You did not need to do this. We need to get it together. So... I went on Facebook the next day and I said, is there anybody who wants to start, you know, getting rid of debt with me? Um, I need to do this. I need some accountability partners. 
And, you know, there was about 19 people, 18, 19 people who wanted to join the group. So I started a little private group with us and it just kind of grew and grew from there. And from that initial moment, what kind of things uh, did you discuss on, on the Facebook page? So it really started about only debt, um, kind of how to reduce debt, what kind of debt we had, how to make smarter decisions with loans and that sort of thing. And um, it really has evolved into a social group. We, we still have the debt component, but it's really we're a major emotional, social, logistical support for each other. Um, we talk about parenting. We talk about bad dates, relationships, um, work. We you know, throw job ads in there for each other. We help each other out. Somebody's having a bad mental health day and they say, you know, my house is a mess. I just can't do this. We'll volunteer to go help her clean. Uh, just all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you think pages like this are so important today? Usually this type of help uh, can come with uh, family, uh, your social network of friends, your immediate friends. Why do you think your group, your organization, particularly your Facebook group, has grown to how to, to, to where it's grown? Yeah, so we have um, just over 330 members right now. And I do think this group is important. It's a very kind of special niche situation that we found ourselves in. A lot of the things we talk about are things that maybe we don't want our families to know. We don't want our families to know that we have this debt. There's a lot of people in there whose spouses don't know about the debt. Um, there's people in there who are trying to get separated and these are not things they feel comfortable asking their friends or family. They're maybe embarrassed or, um, they kind of like the anonymity of the group. It's like, we're all a little family in there, but we don't intersect with their personal lives. And I think just kind of having this sounding board of strangers who are all in the same boat just really encourages people to open up. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on your members, uh, what impact are you seeing um, uh, due to high inflation, uh, rising interest rates, significant increase in interest rates as well, more debt on Canadians? What kind of things are you hearing from your members specifically in the past six to eight months? Mm-hmm. Um, we've certainly, a big one, which I guess is all over Canada, is the groceries increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been a major hit for people. Um, so we, we talk a lot in there about here's where there's deals on food, here's this. Um, we have um, a bunch of recipes that people have put in there with cheaper ingredients. Um, you know, we often talk about how we specifically reduce our own grocery bills. Like my myself, you know, I don't buy meat or dairy. It's very expensive. I stick to on sale or frozen produce, kind of just very basic rice and beans, bread, you know, on sale things, and you know, we managed to get by. So, you in for your family specifically, you just don't buy any meat anymore. That's right. Although I, sh- I should say we didn't eat meat before either. Okay. Um, but seeing seeing the prices now, um, see, yeah, seeing the prices of meat and dairy, it's just it's it's crazy. It's it's not affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. your thoughts just overall, I mean, is this something that you think that is not temporary, but one that Canadians can deal with, or do you think we just have a bigger and broader challenge as Canadians, uh, when it comes to cost of living, 
because inflation hopefully will be tamed. The numbers will come down and hopefully grocery prices as well. But there seems to be almost a structural challenge we have in this country. The prices, it's very hard to get ahead in Canada uh, compared to, uh-huh. let's say, 20 or 30 years. Or maybe it, maybe it was just as challenging back then. Uh, it seems to me that your organization that is, ply, uh, that is supplying or uh, providing advice on simple things as groceries, to clothing, uh, swapping clothing, all those types of things, this seems to be a b- deeper issue across this country. Yes, um, it's it's a very big issue. A lot of our members, though not all of them, are single moms. And, um, you know, the cost of daycare is killing them. The cost of groceries is killing them. We often have posts saying, oh, my God, like, does somebody have a pair of size whatever shoes for an eight-year-old boy? Uh, my son outgrew his shoes. I have no money for them. So, you know, clothing is expensive. So we really... Everything is just expensive. And, you know, being a single parent and having kids and carrying a whole household by yourself is a tough gig. And we really, you know, we we admit and acknowledge that this is not how we want to be living or how, you know, it shouldn't be this hard. But while it is this hard, we work together to help each other out. We swap clothes. We provide childcare for each other. Um, give each other hand-me-downs. If somebody's really struggling, there was a girl just two days ago who um, messaged our mom jeans board, and she said, I think she's got two kids at home. She's a single mom. And she had run out of um, uh, food at the food bank. She wasn't allowed to go back until March now. She used it all up for the month of February. And so she's like, we're hungry. What can we do about this? So I put out a call in mom jeans, And within six hours, we had something like 20 full grocery bags in my porch to deliver to her. So just the community support is really amazing. Canadians helping Canadians, which uh, I think we all love love to hear. Uh, Lise, thank you so much for your time today. All the best to you and your organization. Thank you so much. Let's talk about uh, our oceans and waterways. Well, today, uh, the federal government uh, said it's investing over $46 million over the next five years uh, to see what's, as they say, under uh, Canada's oceans and how to protect them. Uh, Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray said that the understanding of the marine environment is, as she said, relatively meager, uh, given that the oceans cover about 70% of the Earth's surface, which uh, I think there's lots of research being done and has been done on that, but the minister says they're going to do more, which uh, I don't think anybody's going to complain about. The funding will come from the government's uh, Ocean Protection Plan, which they've set aside $3.5 billion nationally. Take a listen to the minister today. It's imperative that Canada better understand our oceans in terms of how they're changing, how we can support their ecosystems, and how we can sustainably manage resources. That was uh, Joyce Murray earlier today. Now, she's been very busy because yesterday she, along with the BC counter, her, her BC uh, counterparts and 15 coastal First Nations, uh, they officially endorsed uh, sort of a vast network of marine protected areas along Canada's west coast. Uh, it's a marine refuge, and uh, basically it would stretch all the way from northern uh, Vancouver Island to the Canadian the Canada-Alaska border. Now, the federal government says it wants uh, wants to conserve about 25% of Canada's oceans by 2025 and 30% by 2030. Now, when you look at this uh, at the outset, certainly at a 30,000-foot level, you're going to go, oh, this sounds wonderful, this sounds great. Uh, but, of course, there's many people uh, and uh, communities that rely on fishing 
and many other industries in and around our coastal waters. Joining me now is Grant Dovey. He's executive director of the Underwater Harvesters Association, which is a member of the BC Seafood Alliance. Grant, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Pleasure to be here. Uh, it, it is a it's a huge area, and of course, it'll take time as this uh, northern shelf bioregion, as it's called, uh, get sort of uh, protected slowly. First of all, uh, talk to me a little bit about what impact this has on your industry and the broader seafood alliance. Well, um, <clears throat> I sum up our our, our our industry right now as as disappointed, angry, and, and, and worried. Um, disappointed, uh, Jazz, because when we first saw the first scenario of this network action pro, um, plan back in 2019, we thought we can help the partners, the provincial government, federal government, and signatory First Nations. We can help them reach their targets, yet uh, still allow for world-class, sustainable managed fisheries in the, in the northern shelf. Um, and so we went to work and we rolled up our sleeves and we provided extensive advice to the partners on hundreds and hundreds of zones in the NSB back in February 2020. Mm-hmm. All, the while, all the while meeting or exceeding the partners' um, ecological conservation priorities, yet mitigating the impacts to, to commercial fishing. And so far, uh, despite our best efforts, uh, our advice, uh, we had no meaningful response on our advice and we're not seeing any uh, meaningful edits or changes to the scenario that's uh, been released just uh, yesterday. So if this marine refuge, uh, as announced, moves forward uh, through the fullness of time, what, do you, what kind of impact do you see to the members of the Seafood Alliance and your, and your, uh, as a member of the Underwater Harvesters Association? Uh, it would be devastating if it went through as is. Uh, we're talking about impacts to key fisheries in the um, best fishing area on the coast, of lost access of 30 to 50 percent uh, of their catch, uh, which is uh, well above the um, recommended protections that um, the partner's own scientists had recommended for many of these fisheries down around 10 or 20 percent. So we just don't understand why um, the industry is being hit so hard. And it's led to loads of uncertainty. We've got fourth, fifth generation fishing families considering whether they should stay in the industry. We've got new entrants to the fishery, including uh, uh, First Nation commercial fishing enterprises with uh, recently signed uh, fisheries reconciliation agreements that are wondering about their recent investments as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just for our audience, you're talking about uh, commercial fishermen and and fisheries, but can you give me a broad broad sense of who the BCC Food Alliance is, what kind of uh, industries we're talking about beyond just fishing? Uh, well, the BC Seafood Alliance is a nonprofit. Uh, we were established in the um, uh, mid '90s, and we represent. Uh, uh, we're an umbrella group that represents um, traditional seafood uh, producers, uh, fishermen on the water, license holders, marketers, exporters, uh, seafood processors. Um, the Seafood Alliance collectively represents about 90% of the wild commercially harvested seafood in, in BC. Mm-hmm. Now, you obviously, as you say, have presented your case. Based on what you've been saying here and what I'm hearing, nothing you have said uh, has been listened to. Did, I mean, were you expecting uh, it to be for the for the federal government and the provincial government to ignore basically everything you have been suggesting in regards to keeping your uh, industry um, relevant uh, in this broader conversation? No, 
no, not at all. I mean, we of course we didn't expect them to um, uh, take our advice, uh, carte blanche, um, but we did expect um, uh, true uh, back and forth and uh, um, compromise and uh, being at the table. And we just haven't we just haven't seen that. It's it's ironic because uh, myself and uh, some other colleagues <clears throat> in the commercial fishing industry from BC Seafood Alliance are presenting at this same conference, this Impact 5 conference, uh, on Wednesday mm-hmm. uh, about um, how uh, industry worked with the Council of Haida Nation and Parks Canada to jointly implement uh, marine zoning in Guayanas. Um, and that was a success story that led to compromise, and we were at the announcement for that uh, zoning. So for our audience, Impact uh, 5 is a, it's a global ocean conservation conference that is occurring right now in Vancouver, and there are representatives from 123 countries uh, meeting to discuss the state of the world's ocean. So this is where the, the announcement yesterday was made and today uh, from Fisheries Minister uh, uh, Joyce Murray. I'm, I'm curious, uh, Grant, the idea of a marine refuge, are, you, are your members still supportive of that, or is it a question of uh, not even not wanting to see a refuge? Are there other ways to work around this? Or can you, can you, can you, would your members accept a refuge that perhaps it be uh, perhaps not as large and the scope not be as large? Are you against a marine refuge at the end of the day? No, no. Um, our members are not opposed to marine planning. Um, like I say, we helped establish a model for compromise mm-hmm. uh, and commercial fishing impr- through a previous Guayanas process in 2018. Um, we think we can use that same process here, um, meet or exceed those ecological conservation priorities, yet reduce the impacts to the commercial fishing industry so that you can still have viable, sustainable fisheries in the northern shelf. Um, so this this is, uh, is clearly more than about ecological conservation priorities. It's rec- Marine planning and reconciliation are are linked. Mm -hmm. So what happens next now? Obviously, the federal government feels they can move forward. The provincial government feels they they should move forward on their plan. They have 15 coastal First Nations uh, who appear to endorse this plan as well. Uh, What happens to your uh, alliance and what are your next steps? Well, like I say, there's lots of uncertainty out there, but at the very least... What we would like um, is, uh, obviously, commercial fisheries are going to be part of reconciliation into the future, right? Mm-hmm. Which is going to mean profound changes for our members. Um, so BC commercial fisheries participants, current participants, First Nation and our First Nation, need uh, a transition plan. We need to be able to work with the government to adopt to this new future and ensure that a very small group of Canadians does not incur the full cost of this reconciliation, which in our opinion should be borne by all Canadians. So we, we would like this uh, transition strategy or transition table to, to be set up. And I think the, uh, the people on the water that we've worked with for years and look in the eyes on the boats, they all agree to that, but we just haven't been able to get um, the minister to agree to set that up. Well, we'll continue to follow the story. Really appreciate your time today, Grant. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thanks for your interest. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.